0: In 1980, there was a group of men in prison in Belfast who set upon a hunger strike that lasted 53 days. The following year, in 1981, the same men embarked upon another hunger strike. It didn't last as long. This time it was brought to an end when 10 of those men died from starvation. Their goals, their motive, was political. They did not accomplish their intended end. And more than that, their hunger accomplished nothing with respect to eternity. In Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger. He's not speaking about a physical hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Jesus is speaking about a spiritual hunger within the context, of course, of other beatitudes in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount. He is, as I've said many times these last few weeks, issuing an invitation. Jesus is inviting us to a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of conducting our lives on this earth. And the invitation comes with it, the potential to shape eternity. If we would accept Jesus's invitation, there is a blessing to be realized now and for all eternity. As I've tried to summarize the theology of the sermon, you may remember, I've said Jesus's invitation is to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered, flourishing. Every step of the way in this sermon, he is directing our attention to the coming kingdom, He is exhorting His disciples to think about the kingdom that is to come when He will appear as King and we shall reign with Him. We're to live our lives in light of those realities. And Jesus' teaching in this first major teaching block of Matthew directs us towards that kingdom every step of the way. Not only that, it is Christ-centered, Properly considered, every aspect of the sentence of the sermon drives us towards Christ. Properly considered, we should at every point of the sermon be renewing our commitment to Christ, renewing our faith in Him, taking up afresh His call to follow after Him. It's worth bearing in mind the sermon is to both His disciples and to the crowds His disciples gather around him. He begins speaking to them, but the crowds then come, and the words go out to both. To both, the sermon is to be Christ-centered. Jesus' disciples have heard his call just a few verses earlier to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. They were there on the shore when he looked them in the eyes and he said, follow me. They received what we call the effectual call, and they're now walking with Him each and every day, and every word that He utters in this sermon is to drive them, to remind them of their commitment to Him above all other things. But it's also Christ-centered for the crowds. Perhaps they hadn't had any interaction with Jesus up until this point. That doesn't mean that the sermon is not for them Christ-centered. If you properly turn around in your mind Jesus' words, at every point in the sermon, the only possible way to rightly interpret them is to begin with faith in Christ. To put it slightly differently, you cannot obey Jesus' words in this sermon until you have put your faith in Christ. And all along the way, it is an invitation to flourish. Jesus is not intending to create a burden for your back. At least not one that will crush you, but one that will be joyful to carry. Joyful, Christ wants you to be joyful and to flourish in this life. He intends for you to flourish as you walk the path of discipleship after him. And, of course, there are promises for the age to come. That is true of the sermon as a whole. It is true of all of its parts. This morning, we think about just one verse of the sermon, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. My prayer as we walk through these beatitudes, one at a time, week by week, and as we, Lord willing, will work through the entirety of this sermon over the next few months is that everybody here is taking up Jesus' invitation. Everyone who gathers is receiving, accepting, acknowledging and heeding Jesus' invitation that comes through the Sermon on the Mount. If you come here and you have never put your faith in Christ, my prayer is that Sunday by Sunday, the Lord is at work. And there would be in these days, at Bethany, those that come to saving faith in Christ. My prayer is that if you've been walking with Christ for a very, very long time, there would be a renewed, delighting in Him and His teaching, a renewed commitment to follow after Him, a fresh beholding of His splendor, and the rightness of his teaching, that you also would be receiving the invitation that he is offering to us every single Sunday, and that as we as a church receive the invitation to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, there would be a prospering, a spiritual flourishing in our midst in these days. I pray that even this morning we would hear Christ's words and accept his invitation. Now, first, we need to figure out what is he saying? What does he mean? When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, what does Jesus mean? And as we've seen in previous weeks, it is actually helpful to begin by thinking through what Jesus does not mean. As a way into this verse this morning, I want to begin by thinking through what does Jesus not mean, what is he not saying. Then think about what he does mean, what he is saying, how we can obey, and what is the reward. Other points this morning. What does Jesus not mean? What does he mean? How might we obey? And what is the reward? Beginning with what Jesus is not saying. When Jesus preaches, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is not saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. I say that with all seriousness. It is more subtle, a misstep, than you might think. We are more prone to read and appropriate the verse to our lives in that way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after happiness, well-being. The reason being, at least in part, because the concept of happiness is hovering all around the Beatitudes. As you know, if you've been with us, this word blessed at the beginning brings with it the notion of a flourishing, a joy, even a happiness right now. It's not wrong to think of Jesus' opening words in that way. Happy are those that do these things, that exhibit these characteristics. So happiness is a concept that very much is interwoven through the Beatitudes, and perhaps more than that, we might say, We are all prone to seek our happiness. Just a few weeks ago, I quoted from Blaise Pascal, who said, all men work towards this end. Everyone without fail seeks happiness. It is the cause for some men going to war and others staying at home. All men seek happiness. It is one of the strongest desires operating within each and every one of us. Now, I want to be very careful because... There is a real valid sense in which the Christian faith ought to be one where we pursue joy, happiness, well-being. But it must always be on God's terms. It must always be defined by God. The second we step away from God's requirements of us is the second we start to pursue happiness in a manner that dishonors God and ironically brings to us nothing but misery. We are prone to think of this beatitude in the sense of I would be blessed if I just pursue my own well-being, and that is not what Jesus is saying. Additionally, and very closely related, Jesus is not saying blessed are those who pursue what they consider to be right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for their own standard of righteousness. Jesus is not saying that. The righteousness of which he speaks here is a righteousness that must be defined by God. It must be defined by God and God alone as he has given to us a standard by which we are to live in his word. You realize we are all prone to justify our actions. So wicked is our sinful tendency that we can find a way to justify just about anything that our hands or our feet would give time and energy to. We can justify just about anything, and the Proverbs speak to such behavior. There is a way that seems right to a man. Notice that Solomon there does not care to delineate the way because he understands that just about anything can come under the way. There is a way that seems right to a man. We will justify anything. And then he says, but its end is death. Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what they consider to be right. This is a righteousness that must be defined by God's Word. And you see the implication that immediately flows out from understanding righteousness on God's terms, namely that you are responsible to know His Word. If you are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, surely step one is to know the righteousness that God commands. With the most biblically illiterate age in all of church history. Never have there been Christians that know their Bible as little as we do. That is to our shame and to our detriment. If we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we must first know what that righteousness looks like. The implication that comes from this is that we must be people who read God's Word, Go to God's Word, study, in particular, the epistles given to us in the New Testament. Therein, you will find the roadmap for your Christian faith. You will find the commands that come to us in Christ that we are to obey, that we are bound to obey, that are our responsibility to obey. Only when you know what God's righteousness is, can you possibly hunger and thirst after it. Do not allow yourself to fall into the way of thinking that you know what God's righteousness is and actually what you're doing each and every day is defining your own standard of righteousness. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is not saying, blessed are those who are okay with righteousness. He's not saying, even if we acknowledge this righteousness is one that must be defined by God, he is not saying, blessed are those that are not offended by God's righteousness. You understand, most people are not offended by the ethics that Jesus teaches. Broadly speaking, Taken in a, in a very broad brushstroke manner, most people who have nothing to do with Christ are not offended by the ethic that he teaches. It is very hard to say that you object when Jesus says, treat others as you would wish to be treated. It's a very agreeable statement. You can be very far from Christ and still agree with his teaching not be offended by it. Now, granted, there is a point that comes for everybody. Everyone who is outside of Christ, there is a point that comes where they start to take offense. And that is normally when Jesus' teaching intersects with their lives and confronts them on their sin. But in a broad sense, most are not offended by the righteousness that Jesus commands in the Gospels. I grew up going to something of a Christian school. We used to give thanks before we would eat our lunch each day and we'd have a pastor come in and give an assembly every week. It was a school that came under the Church of England. I can't remember ever hearing the gospel taught there. What is remarkable is I think back on my few years in that school, is that no one in my family at that time was a believer. So why did my mom want me for, to go to a Christian school? And the answer is the same reason most parents wanted their children to go to that school, because she desired that I would have a good moral upbringing. No real desire for Christ, but a desire for a morality that is not offensive to the world, Jesus is not saying you are blessed in so much as you are not offended by my righteousness. And lastly, and very importantly, Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justification." Perhaps you've read this verse previously and thought what Jesus is speaking of here is the righteousness of which Paul speaks when he writes to the Romans or to the Galatians, righteousness that is imputed by God through Christ. There is a righteousness that when you put your faith in Christ, you take Christ at His word, you find Him to be a sufficient Savior, He makes a payment for your sin, you are utterly forgiven, and you receive His righteousness. There is a righteousness that the Bible speaks of that is imputed, but we have to allow words to be defined by their immediate context. That righteousness is found in other books of the Bible not being spoken of here. If you look down just by way of example to verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Same word, highly unlikely that Jesus is saying blessed are you who are persecuted for your imputed righteousness. Or again, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware, Jesus says, of practicing your righteousness before other people. He's not saying beware of practicing your imputed righteousness. No, what Jesus has in mind here, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, is a genuine desire and longing to do what is right before God. It does not mean happiness, it does not mean that you're okay with righteousness, it doesn't mean your own standard, it doesn't mean justification, it means you are blessed in so much as you genuinely desire, long for, that which is right as defined by God. We're now moving on to the second point. What is Christ saying? He is saying, Blessed are those who desperately want to do right before God. Now, notice this comes within an argument. So I've said this in previous weeks the Beatitudes are not standalone statements entirely disconnected from their environment, their context. There's a discernible logic to what Jesus is teaching here. He begins, as you'll remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually impoverished. Those who understand and readily confess before God, I have nothing to bring to the table. He then moves on in the progression of thought and the argument, blessed are those who mourn the fact. Not merely that you acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy before God, but that you grieve it. Jesus then moves on, and this was our text last week, blessed are the meek. With your confession of sin in hand, with your grieving of sin in hand, that then informs your disposition both before God and before others. Having acknowledged your spiritual bankruptcy and grieving the fact, you now adopt a disposition of trust and acceptance before a sovereign, holy God, and you conduct yourself in a way that seeks to be at peace with those around you. Blessed are the meek. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Having confessed your spiritual bankruptcy, grieving the fact, behaving as one who is meek in the world, you now take your first active step. This is the first beatitude, arguably, that is commending us to be active, to do something. It is not speaking so much about a state, but a state and an action. You're actually doing something. You are namely hungering and thirsting. You're now desiring that which you acknowledge by virtue of your sin, you are incapable of accomplishing. You want to do good before God. Apart from Christ, you cannot. In Christ, now, as we've already prayed and thought about this morning, you have a new heart, and you can, and there is a desire to do that right. The desire, Christ says, is to be intense. Notice, he mixes his metaphors. You hunger for food. You thirst for water. You don't hunger for water or thirst for food, but Jesus brings them together in order to show us just how intense The longing is to be in our hearts for righteousness. It is, in a sense, difficult for us to know this longing. Difficult because we in the West have rarely, if ever, experienced true, ongoing physical hunger. Rarely if ever, have any of us experienced in an ongoing way true hunger, as would have been familiar, if not known, to the people in Jesus' day. In Second Kings 6, it speaks of a famine that was so severe that mothers were willing to eat their children. There's a group right now in China who are being persecuted. A Muslim group were being taken and put into camps and persecuted by the Chinese government. I recently read an interview of a woman who had been in one of those camps and managed to escape, and she was able to find asylum in America. She spoke about her experience there, and she had been tortured and abused in all kinds of ways, but the thing she kept returning to in the interview was the hunger pains. Her experience of hunger in those camps. Jesus says we're to have an acute longing, a hunger and a thirst to do what is right before God. That's how intense our desire is to be. And it is also to be extensive, intensive, but extensive. If you think back to our study on what it means to mourn sin, you'll remember that there we spoke about Jesus commending, not only a grieving over your personal sin, not only a grieving over the fact that you sin but so also rightly understood a grieving over other people's sin. Back when we were in chapter 5 verse 4, I argued based upon Isaiah 61, the logic given in Isaiah 61 is this corporate realization of righteousness, the kingdom coming, of the mourners' plural being comforted based on that corporate theology in Isaiah 61, I argued that properly understood grieving your sin is to be grieving your own sin and the sins of your brothers and sisters in Christ and even the sins that are in society. By the same logic, I would say that when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Rightly understood, we should long desire, deeply desire for a righteousness in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and even in society. To properly walk into this invitation is to cultivate within our hearts a deep and a desperate longing for righteousness in our own lives, but so also righteousness in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So just think again about the implications that flow out from that reality. Each and every Sunday you should be here looking around you with great love in your hearts for your brothers and sisters in Christ, longing that they would do right before God. Longing that you would be conducting yourself in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord and so also those whom God has placed around you without any sense of judgmentalism, without any sense of being higher or better than anyone else, understanding your own sin and your sorry state before God apart from Christ, at the same time, there is a spiritual reality wherein you grieve your sin of your neighbor and you long for their righteousness. And such would surely suggest that you need to be in one another's lives to cultivate such a hunger. You cannot hunger for their righteousness unless you know them, you're sharing your life with them, and you have a deep-seated love for them. It cannot be that you show up only on Sundays, last to arrive, first to leave. Skip Sunday evening because it's just not that important. Don't do anything during the the week with any other Christians. It cannot be the case that you would long for their righteousness if that is the manner of your Christianity. By contrast, when you immerse yourself in the body of Christ Sunday by Sunday, worshipping in the mornings and the evenings, seeking out fellowship during the week, You will see how God brings about a deep love in your heart for those around you this morning. And so also will follow a desire, a genuine desire to see righteousness in their lives. And then allow that to extend even to society. Meditate long and hard upon the glories of the kingdom as given to us in Isaiah 61 and many other chapters. And as you take in that wonderful vision given to us by the prophet of a glorious day when Christ will be on his throne and his people will be declared as oaks of righteousness. Allow that vision to be projected onto society Project that truth to the world you see around you. Undoubtedly, there is a vast disconnect. It doesn't match up, and that's exactly the point. You see the wonderful realities of the society that is to come when the kingdom is established, and that then fuels your prayer and fuels your desire that God, by His hand, would establish in this day some degree of righteousness beyond the church. Do you pray in that way? Do you ever look towards society and say, God, be merciful to us this day? You can do this. Would you establish by some means, according to your wisdom, a level of uprightness in this wicked society? That is what it means when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So my question is whether you have such desires in your heart, whether all that I've been speaking, out this, speaking about this morning is familiar to you as it relates to your desires. The truth of the matter is when your heart and your mind is not distracted, distracted, When there's nothing demanding your attention in the quiet moments, the place where your heart and your mind wanders is usually an indication of what you thirst and hunger for. Consider where your heart goes when nothing is demanding your attention. You have some quiet moments. Where does your mind meander to? Because the resting place of your thoughts is an indication of what it is you hunger and thirst after. And if in some measure there is not some longing found in your heart this morning for the righteousness that God commands, then it is perhaps that you need to re-examine your foundations. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this beatitude, it is surely one of the most preeminent teachings of the Christian life because it exposes what our foundations are. A baby does not need to be taught to hunger and thirst. Don't dismiss this beatitude as something that mature Christians attain to. One of the most earliest impulses in the Christian life is a desire to honor God. One of the most early expressions of a newborn believer is a desire to do right by God. And if you do not find that desire somewhere in your life, then you need to re-examine your foundation. Which then leads us to the question of how how may we obey this teaching of Christ? And the answer is, is if you've never come to Christ, that that's where you have to begin. Again, the metaphor of hungering and thirsting is helpful. It's used throughout the scriptures. Jesus speaks of. Thirsting in John chapter 7, come to me if you thirst and I will give you water. A spiritual water that causes, Jesus says, streams of living water to well up from within you. If you don't find within yourself this morning a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness, a deep-seated desire to honor the Lord, then come to Christ. Put your faith in Him, see Him to be a sufficient Savior. Only then would you give rise to these impulses within your heart. If you know Christ, but you're acknowledging that these desires are faint, we can all hunger and thirst yet more, then the antidote is to exercise. Again, the metaphor is helpful, hungering and thirsting. How do we bring about an appetite, a thirst? The answer, as one commentator explains, is to exercise. It's no different here. How do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? You exercise. Specifically, you exercise your heart and your mind in a right thinking about what God expects of you. You go to His Word and you Examine the lofty responsibilities that God has placed upon all of creation, especially His church, what He demands of you, and you choose to long after it. You see, in a sense, the counsel that springs forth from this beatitude is the same as the counsel that I gave when we were thinking about mourning over sin. How do you cultivate a grieving over your sin. As the Puritans taught us to pray, you pray until you pray. You mourn until you mourn. Don't walk through your Christian life waiting for this spirit to overcome you where all of a sudden you're just grieving your sin. No, you choose a deliberate and intentional step to grieve your sin. You don't feel like praying when you wake up. Very rarely do you feel like you want to run to the Lord in prayer when the alarm clock sounds so early, but you pray until you pray. And when you pray and you start to move your lips and you speak to God, watch how your soul, by God's grace, will follow and you'll start to pray. Before long, your heart and your soul will now be engaging with communion with God. In the same manner, you mourn until you mourn. Choose to grieve your sin. Tell God how much you hate your sin and watch your spirit follow. And by the same token, hunger until you hunger. Thirst for righteousness until you thirst for righteousness. Meditate upon the law of the Lord so that he would move you to be in line with the psalmist. And with all sincerity, you would cry out to him and say, I love your Lord, God. I love your law and I want to obey it yet more in my life. As a daily practice, choose to delight in the law of the Lord and thirst after it. Acknowledge your shortcomings before God and pray that he would establish yet more in your heart a desire to honor him by his law. So that you would start to evidence this characteristic. Jesus is simply giving characteristics here that will be true of his disciples so that you would be one who genuinely hungers and thirsts for righteousness. What is the reward? What is the reward for pursuing this path? It is twofold as all of the Beatitudes are. Remember, Jesus says this word blessed to speak of a flourishing that is available right now. You are blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why is it? How can Jesus say you will flourish today if you hunger for righteousness? I would say simply because the Bible teaches the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs teaches the way of the transgressor is hard. God has established his law to be good and perfect, reviving to the soul. It ought to be life giving. When Jesus gives commands, when the apostles gives commands, when the church seeks to obey, it is not to crush you, it is to give life. To give life to those who are found in Christ. The commands are God's gift to us. When we choose to follow the commands of Christ, we are choosing a good path. When we turn our back on the commands that God has placed upon us, we are choosing an arduous path a hard path. Every time you belittle the commands of Scripture, every time you talk them away as if somehow they're not binding on your life, every time you are careless with the commands that God gives us, you are putting yourself in a position that is hard. And you will find that hardship one way or another, even if the sin that you pursue brings a fleeting satisfaction, ultimately, eventually, at some point, you will learn that the way of the transgressor is hard. So Jesus says, blessed, flourishing, happy, joy-filled are those who choose a happy path, who long thirst hunger for my right standard, who hunger and thirst to do what is right in my eyes. That is the blessing that is available to you today. If there is ongoing sin in your life that you have not yet dealt with, if you come here with some secret sin that you're fostering, you think you can keep it hidden and it really isn't affecting the rest of your life, you need to understand that you're choosing a hard path. That sin will infect the rest of your life. You're choosing the way of the transgressor. Jesus invites you today to flourish by dealing with your sin and by longing for his righteousness. But it's a twofold blessing and the second half is found in the second half of the verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst thirst for righteousness, for there is a future blessing available. They shall be satisfied. Now, it's true that as you put your faith in Christ and pursue the path of sanctification, it is true there is a degree by degree, step by step realization of the righteousness to which God commends us. He truly does, in this life, shape us to be more like His Son. We do, by His grace, tread out a path of increased righteousness as we walk with Him. That's not what Jesus is talking about when He says you will be satisfied. If you've walked with Christ for any length of time, you'll know that, ironically, in the pursuit of sanctification... The more you pursue Christ's likeness, the more you recognize your own sin. The more you obtain to Christ's likeness, the more you see your sin for what it is. There is, by God's grace, less of it in your life, but you grieve it more. That is just the wisdom of God in our pursuit of sanctification. What Jesus is actually speaking about is the coming of His kingdom. When His kingdom comes then, then Christ's disciples will be satisfied. You have lived your whole life longing for righteousness, longing to do what is right before God. Longing that your brothers and sisters in Christ would do what is right before God. Longing that God would establish righteousness in the world around you. And there is coming a day when you will be satisfied. Your longings will be met. Your longings will be satiated. There is coming a day when you stand before Christ and in an instant, every sinful inclination of your heart will be banished forever. You take in Christ face to face and the pride, the deep-seated pride that has accompanied you, your whole earthly life will be entirely absent. And by contrast, the longings that you have had, your whole Christian life will be completely met as God establishes you as an oak of righteousness in that day. May we live as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so that we would be blessed and in the coming days we would be satisfied. Pray with me now to close. Father, we give you thanks this morning for this teaching of Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. May we come to terms with what Jesus is not saying. May we come to terms with what he is saying. May we be faithful to obey Cultivating in our hearts a genuine, sincere desire to do what is right before you. And God, may we know the reward. May we flourish in these days. May we be satisfied when the kingdom comes. We ask in Christ's name.